Hey, just a few things before we jump in today. This is, uh, today is a part two. If you weren't here last week, you can hop on and line and watch it. Uh, I apologize in advance uh, for any of you that might choose to do that. Um, it's all about these verses in Matthew 7 where Jesus talks about not judging. And so uh, last week we kicked it off. It's just a couple weeks. We just want to spend some time with these verses and let them sort of soak in. I, I can't imagine if, there's, if, if there is another issue facing the church today that's larger than this one. I can't think of what it is. If there's anybody in here that has been around church world for much of their life, you know somebody that has been on the receiving end of judgment and it has driven them from the church or driven them from faith or driven them from other Christians. It's a really, really big deal. And so if it feels like I'm uh, a little passionate about it, I am because I love the church deeply um, and I love people who don't connect to church deeply and I see it happening in our culture and it's ripping things apart. Now, I got a text last week uh, from my good friend, uh, Will, and he said, you know, you preached on judging and then I went home and watched the Broncos game. <laughs> and so what a test, right? What a test. Ah, oh, what a test. And I, and I, I you know, so I, I confessed freely my judgmentalness last week. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't a ploy uh, to get you to think I'm like you, therefore, you know, that was just me being me. And uh, sad to say, I mean, if you thought, oh, Phil's kind of acting like one of us. Nope, he just kind of is one of us. Uh, because I, I, I texted back to, to Will, I said, you, you think he's regretting the trash talk during the off season? And, you know, I mean, I got, I got a million zingers uh, for, for Coach Payton right now. And it's just, it's, you know, it's because I'm judgy. So it would be good. It would be good if we all started off with this idea. And, and this was what I shared last week. I don't know if being, being judgmental is an issue for you. Uh, it, it might not be an issue for you. You might find yourself in a place where that's not something that you struggle with. And if we were to be honest, in our, our gathering here and folks watching online, if you put us all on a continuum of, of ages, uh, there is a certain age where being judgmental becomes a little more likely. I'm not going to say what that age is. <laughs> But you probably have an idea that, that my boys who are in their late 20s, one's 30, they don't struggle with this near, near like I do. And if you grew up in church, there is a, a likelihood or a propensity that you might have toward it. And the reason is because of this first idea that Jesus gives us, we'll, re, we'll remind you, that, that if you've been judged, you have a tendency to judge. And so those who have been judged, we're likely to become more judgmental. And so let's just all sort of level the playing field and, and we'll say this statement together. Sometimes I am judgmental. So I know you may not be, but just play along, okay? <laughs> so say it with me. Are you ready? Sometimes I am judgmental. And it kind of hurts to say that. I bet you could maybe think of a time this week when that was the case, but if you'll start there, and then the other, the other assumption we're starting with in this message last week's too is that when Jesus says do not judge, he just kind of means that. That's all. There's no way to explain it away. There's no reason to create a theology that allows us to circumvent what he says. We're just going to assume that that's what he meant. Now, I know that there's some things that Jesus said that he didn't mean that. When he said, you know, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, that's not what he meant. And you can make an argument, and if you look online, you'll find that we Christians have a thousand ways to get around Jesus' statement, do not judge. 
There are so many ways around it. But just for, this, for these few weeks, we're just going to say he just meant what he said. And then you can decide later to just toss it if you want. Okay? And the reason you get to do that is because when Jesus teaches and he lays out some of the statements that he makes, we all get to make that decision. The problem when we read the Sermon on the Mount is that we come to it with a religious perspective. And the religious perspective is one where we want to decide that that this is a, a, a do's and don'ts. It's a right and a wrong. It's a black, it's white. It is a list of law commands. That's what we do. In fact, this is our perspective when we read the Sermon on the Mount. We recognize that the Jewish community they have uh, the Old Testament, the Torah, the Ten Commandments. And, you know, we're so broad-minded, we'll say, yeah, we'll, go, we'll live by those too. We'll even adopt your commands. We think they're pretty good ones. Don't kill and such, right? So we're going to add those to ours, but we're going to take what Jesus said and we're going to turn it into another set of laws. And that's what we do. In fact, the church has done this for decades, centuries even. And when we turn it into a set of laws then we are missing the entire point of why Jesus came in the first place. I bet you, if you grew up in church, were a part of a church where it was turned into laws, a list to obey, a, a line to put your toes on, to not deviate from. But you and I, when we read the words of Jesus, we get to decide. Because this set of commands, if you want to see it that way, that's found in the Sermon on the Mount, they aren't commands. It's Jesus articulating how life works. And you get to either join in with where Jesus is going, or you get to decide, I don't want to go there. And the reason is because at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus looks at some friends and some people that he had some conversations with, and he invites them to come along. He says, come and, what does he say? Follow me. That's why we call the series follower. Jesus is inviting you to go on a journey down this road, down this path. Adopting these ideas is the best ways to live, is how God set the world up, how relationships work. And you get to decide the same thing. In fact, some of us have decided this is a good one, not so much, no way. It doesn't matter. We, we've all looked at the teachings of Jesus at times and said, this one doesn't work for me today. And so I choose to go a different path. And when we do that, God is so gentle and he's so kind. He'll meet us in that place. He'll show us where we're erring. He'll bring somebody into our path. We have to deal with the repercussions of what happened. And he says, now I'm going to invite you again. Do you want to go with me? This is where we're going. Because when Jesus interacts with us, whether it was in the first century with his disciples or in our lives today, he is always inviting, always, to go to a new place. And this place is usually a place we haven't been before. It involves some things that we don't really, we're not too sure about it. But it's always a place that is full of life and freedom and love and grace. Always. I promise you, that's what the zip code is about. That's what the destination is about. So Jesus says, I came that you may have, what does he say? Life, and that you would have it to the? He said, if the son sets you free, then you are free, what? You know these words, and you know this truth. And so when Jesus says, look, do not judge others, or you will be judged, 
he's inviting you. He's inviting you to decide that that's a good idea, that I'm going to embrace that idea, and I'm going to try to live it out and see what happens as a result. And so we asked you at the end of the service last week, if you were around or you listened online, we asked you to pray that God would show you the ways in which you're likely to sit in judgment of other people. How many of you, uh, God was so gracious to answer that prayer to you this week? Let me see your hands. Come on, raise them up. Okay, some, some of y'all didn't pray that very well, did you? You're like, I'm going to phone this one in. I hope he doesn't answer it. So we want to know that God is inviting us to become aware of when we do this and then to choose a different path. And in that different path, we find love and we find grace and we find a level of mercy flowing to us from God that we didn't even know existed. And when we do that, God is more real. His love dominates all of our relationships. And so we find ourselves in places where we can forgive when we couldn't before, we held a grudge. We were able to look at somebody in a way that communicates love and grace instead of expectation and failure. And this changes everything. Now, when Jesus says this, don't judge others or you will be judged, uh, he's not like an a old curmudgeon parent who just says, because I said so. He tells us the reasons why. And he helps us understand the picture of why this matters and what happens naturally. Naturally. It's not a God punishment thing. It just happens naturally if we ignore this idea and this principle. And so when he does that, when he helps us understand it, we said last week that there is a very practical reason why it matters. So when we judge others, we do not experience the true depth of God's grace or the full measure of God's unconditional love. I shared this last week, and it's a tough concept. It's a hard one for us to get our heads around. But the truth is, is what happens when we judge others, we set a standard up that not only others can't meet, but we can't meet it as well. And when we can't meet this standard, we find ourselves, of course, reveling the fact that we're better than somebody else, or at least for the moment, but we also know deep down that we can't meet that standard. We don't make the measure. And so the statement makes it clear that, look, Jesus wants to invite you to a place of grace and unconditional love. And that's why he first says, don't judge others or you will be judged. Here's how Jesus says it. You will be judged in the same way that you judge others. Not by God, but by your standard. God's standard doesn't change. God's standard is the same. In fact, the verdict is already in. You're forgiven. You are loved. But you'll be judged in the same way that you judge others. And the amount you give to others, the amount of what? You name it. Judgment. Love. Insert whatever you want. Whatever. Anything. Forgiveness. Grace. Mercy. Expectation. The amount you give to others will be what? Will be given to you. In fact, the way we said it last week is this. The God you believe in is the God what? If you believe in a God of mercy and love and grace, forgiveness, then this is the God you experience. If you believe in a God that forgives, then you experience forgiveness. And you also forgive freely. 
if you believe something else, that also comes to bear. And so while that might seem like heresy, I mean, isn't God God? Isn't God who he says he is? Don't I think I know who he is? Aren't I just reading the scripture and describing God as he is? Let me remind you that, and I think you know this, you, you are aware, aren't you, that you and I believe different perceptions about God? Did you know that? There's an understanding of God that you have. It was shaped by the people in your life who knew God before you came along, the church that you grew up in, the way they interpreted scripture, they gave to you a picture of who God is. And you have an understanding of God, and it's probably pretty different than mine. I don't know. Maybe it's pretty close to the same, but there's a good chance that if we were to really describe it well and take time to dig on it, we would have at least a dozen different pictures of God represented in the room. Wouldn't you say more? And that understanding of God, well, the God you believe in is the God you experience. And I think mine is correct. So do you. And that's okay. What we want to do is move toward a better understanding, a more complete picture of who God is as we dig into scripture and maybe allow some of the old ideas that were built up in our life to be torn down. And this is a good thing. We want to know God more fully more completely, more intimately, and more accurately. Let's say you grew up Roman Catholic, just for example. I don't know who in the room grew up Roman Catholic. I know my friend Jim grew up Roman Catholic. Maybe some, of the, some other people in the room grew up Roman Catholic. And let's say if you grew up Roman Catholic and then you, you, you grew up, went off college, met your future spouse who was a, oh, a strict Southern Baptist, we'll say, just for fun, Okay. And, you, and you, you, former Roman Catholic, married this strict Southern Baptist, and you began to build a life together. You, you would have a vision or an understanding of who God is. And your view about God might be, hey, look, look, I, this is the deal. Look, this, this book tells us how to live. And if we would just all kind of get on the same page and get in line with what this book says about how to live, then everything would work out just fine. And all the problems of the world would just go away. If you read the scriptures, it's obvious that the God of the Bible is about moral living. And moral living, make good choices, get your life in order, get your life in line, straighten things up. That will solve the issues that we face today in our culture. And everyone will get along. I mean, let me be clear. I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That's all. And so if you have a problem with it, you don't have a problem with me, you got a problem with the Bible. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> Let me see your hands, if you, that sounds familiar to you. Not that you said it, you're afraid. Is he saying, did I say that? Am I supposed to raise my hand? No, no, this is, this is the perspective that you may have or that I may have about scripture or what it means to live, how we think we should live, and how we think others should live. And there are a few things that will help you understand that there are some errors in logic and thinking that take us to a place where we believe things like that. You might not even know that during the days prior to the Civil War that Christian churches in the South used the Bible to justify slavery. You might not even be aware that in the 50s that there were still 
what we thought were enlightened churches and pastors in the South that fought tooth and nail against the civil rights movement and used scriptures to justify the subjugation of another race. And they would say, hey, it's not my idea. It's not my theology. It's just what the Bible says. And if you understand this theology deeply and you understand the statement, the God you believe in is the God you experience. And if you take that approach, then we begin to believe in and we begin to create a legalistic God that no one can satisfy. Not me, not you. And that legalistic God is a God of rules and order. And so you and I place an expectation on other people and then we create this inescapable feeling that we do not measure up, that we will never be good enough, that no matter how we live or how much we stop doing that thing that we don't feel like we can stop doing or the ways that we understand our hearts and minds are behaving towards other people, only then do we understand what Jesus meant when he said, listen close, you will be judged in the same way that you judge others. It's that first practical reason that when we judge others in this way, we find ourselves being judged. Listen, if you find yourselves wanting, desiring to experience a more loving God, stop judging others. If you want to experience the grace and kindness that you, some of your friends seem to experience in their relationship with God, then just stop judging others. I, I know the feeling is, is that, well, if I stop, I mean, the world's just going to slip down that slippery slope and who knows where we'll end up. And I know, but that's way above your pay grade. Nobody has assigned you with the task of saving the world. Gospel of John says, Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And if he didn't come in to condemn the world, then I doubt God sent you for that purpose either. And so this is the first reason. It is for you to find freedom and joy and peace. It's a very practical reason. God's love is on the other side of your decision to at least say, Lord, show me when I'm judgmental and give me the courage and the wisdom to back up from it. Because as we confessed a bit ago, sometimes we can be judgmental. That's a practical reason that I showed you before. There's another reason. It's a spiritual reason. When we judge others, we create the perfect environment for, what is it? hypocrisy, to take root, grow, multiply, and spread. So take a moment, read that statement again. You see the word hypocrisy. This is so important and it's key because it's right in the middle of this passage in Matthew chapter 7. Hypocrisy takes on a few different forms all throughout scripture and in my life and in your life. Hypocrisy shows up when I say something and then do something else. Like I say that you should be and live a certain way and then I walk away and I am antithetical to that. I decide to live the other way. I present one thing, and but deep inside, I'm something else. That's one version of hypocrisy. Another way that hypocrisy shows up is when I set a standard 
that I expect you to live by, and then I cannot live by or meet that standard. That's hypocrisy. Both are hypocrisy, and there are some shades between both of those circumstances, but this is what hypocrisy means. I can't even meet the requirement that I expect you to meet. Now, hypocrisy, according to scripture, all of the great spiritual teachers, it is a spiritual condition. And it is a spiritual condition that every prophet in the scriptures confronts and calls out. Every author in scripture addresses it. It is the one thing that drew Jesus' anger to a fevered pitch. It is the one state or one condition or one behavior that drew out his harshest teachings. And, you know, Jesus spent time with all kinds of people. And he spent time with him in all kinds of settings. Some were social settings, some were meal settings, some were just walking by the road settings. But if you wanted to see Jesus allow his words to work like a scalpel and just cut in very sharp, very dividing ways, then he had to encounter somebody who was living out hypocrisy or a hypocrite. It is, spiritually speaking, hypocrisy is cancer. That's what it is. It is the beginning of the end. It is the beginning of you deciding that you don't want what God wants for you. And we can all make that choice. And we see this happen in scripture over and over again. But when I say it's cancer, what I mean is this. When we move toward hypocrisy on purpose, then we decide that we are hardening our heart against the things that God wants. Now listen, very closely. I'm not talking about sin. I'm not even talking about willful sin. I'm talking about hypocrisy on purpose. And Jesus connects judging other people with the very essence of hypocrisy. It's the exact thing that Jesus preached about time and time again. It's the opposite of who Jesus was. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, when we see hypocrisy, it appalls us, doesn't it? It doesn't matter if it's outside the church or in politics or arts, sports, you name it. When we see hypocrisy, it, it just it rises up within us and it makes us angry and we feel indignant. And Jesus equates it with the behavior of judging other people. Here's how Jesus describes hypocrisy. It's Matthew 7. He says this. Why do you notice the little piece of dust in your friend's eye, but you don't notice the what? the piece of wood, or maybe your translation that you're familiar with, the plank or the board. It's a, it's a piece of lumber in your own eye. How can you say to your friend, let me take that little piece of dust out of your eye? This is such uh, astounding and incredible hyperbole. It's, it's this cartoonish picture, right, of me walking around with this board lodged in my eye. And I come up to you and say, you know, let's get that little, what is that? I see it's this little floaty right there. We're gonna, this is an absolutely ridiculous idea. And this is how Jesus says judging others happens. This preposterous picture. As ridiculous as that sounds, it is so common. 
it is so normal for us to behave in this way that psychology has a, a bias named after it. And it's talked about at every turn in social awareness. In fact, some would say it is the foundation of social psychology. It's called this, the fundamental attribution error. How many of you heard of this? You've heard of it? Yeah. Say it with me. You ready? Fundamental attribution error. What this means is when somebody else makes a mistake, I'm likely to attribute it to their character, their uh, moral fabric, their basic humanity. When I make a mistake, I'm likely to excuse it as an oops, or I didn't mean to do that, or that's what I, not what I normally do. Fundamental attribution error is the essence of hypocrisy. So if you see somebody trip on the sidewalk, you think they're clumsy. And when you trip, you think, obviously, it's uneven. I mean, anybody would have tripped, right? So I bet just with that little piece of knowledge, you can think of at least a dozen applications, right? Your coworker is late. And your assumption is irresponsible, lazy. They probably clocked in on their way to work. You have all sorts of thoughts about their inability to get their job done, which is going to make your day longer. You're late, and it is, well, of course I'm late. I mean, you saw the traffic. Anybody would be late. And so we have this tendency. It's stronger than a tendency. It's almost built into our nature. We engage in fundamental attribution error. We have a habit of attributing somebody else's flaws to their character to their lack of spirituality, their lack of spiritual growth, their inability to make right choices. They're just bad people. But when we make the same mistakes, when we commit the same errors, we engage in the same sinful behavior, we attribute it to, oh, I was stressed, I didn't see that, of course I would say that in that circumstance. We have lots of excuses that let us off the hook. And even if you are known by yourself and by your friends, know about you that you're incredibly hard on yourself, we all engage in this behavior. And the reason why it matters is because what we would call in the psychology world fundamental attribution error, Jesus calls hypocrisy. And that's a little more pointed, isn't it? It doesn't sound near as acceptable, but it is just as real. And the reason that matters is because hypocrisy, when we are judging others, it is spiritual cancer. Uh, this is how Philip Yancey, author, this is how he describes it. He says it this way. Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do. <laughs> That's, that, that ought to sting a little... Are you laughing because it's just a little too close to home? Just a little too, mm, oh, that, yeah, this sting just a little bit. Because we have a habit of doing this. Because we think that somebody else's path or sin is way worse than ours. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you call it fundamental attribution error or hypocrisy. Spiritual cancer is what it is. And, and Jesus tells us what to do with it. He tells us how to deal with it. He tells us exactly what to do. Here's what he says. 
you still have that big piece of wood in your own eye, you what? Same word. First, what does he say you do? Say it with me. Take the wood out of your own eye. In fact, he'd tell you to do with that piece of wood. <clears throat> the same thing that a doctor would do with cancer. What? Do what with it? Take it out. Just take it out. Don't do that. Now, I, I know if you're anything like me, when I read this, I thought, oh, so that's what I got to do. I just have to take the piece of wood out, and then I can get all judgy with people. <laughs> all I have to do is make sure that I'm right about what I think, and I've got, I, I, I see clearly, I've, I've cleaned off my glasses, right? Put them back on, and now I can get all judgy. And what Jesus would say to me, and for goodness sakes, I know none of you are near this hard-hearted as I am. What Jesus would say to me is, uh, are we back there again? Are we back in that same spot? Let me refer you to step number one which is do not judge. Do not judge. And what Jesus is saying to each of us about this this cancer, this hypocrisy, those of us who engage in judgmental thinking about other people have a habit of mistakenly believing that we have arrived that we know that there isn't more for us to learn, at least about that one thing or this one thing or maybe the whole thing. I don't know. We have this feeling that we have it figured out. And Jesus would say, look, the opposite of what I'm wanting you to engage in, the opposite of the way I want you to live is being judgmental now, you can pull these verses out of Matthew 7, or you could go to the letter that James wrote when he says there is only one law, one lawgiver. Who are you to judge your neighbor? You could go to Romans chapter 2, you could go to Romans chapter 14, you can go to any number of places in Scripture, and it seems that if you're looking for it, if you're aware of what Jesus says, that this theme is present, and it's present because of the relationships in the early church that were being broken and irreparably harmed by judgmental people who decided to draw lines where Jesus was drawing circles. And it happens today. Happens today in the church. Happens in every church. And Jesus has called us to something different. So let's not think about the church, the big C church. That's far too big for us to deal with. Let's talk about me and let's talk about you and our relationships and the people that are in your life that for some reason you feel like you've had to draw a line with or the people that you have put distance between you and somebody else because of this very reason. There's a speck of dust somewhere and you're not content with it. It needles at you. It pokes at you. The Christian culture which had, would have you believe that they ought to remove that speck of dust before you can be in good relationship with them. And there's one other reason. So there's that practical one, there's a spiritual one, but there's a relational reason. And it's this one. The relational reason is this. Say it with me. We cannot love and judge at the same time. You can't. It's impossible. 
You can do one, you can do the other, but you can't do both at the same time. I know, I know, we want to speak the truth in love, but that's mostly, mostly just so that we can judge. We cannot love and judge at the same time. Now, if you're at least allowing yourself to put up a little resistance, which is good, it's very healthy for you to have some resistance to this idea. In fact, you ought to have resistance from every idea that you hear at church, any church. You ought to drive you to scripture. There ought to be something in you that says, I don't know about that. That seems a little, I don't know, you name it, you know, off. And it ought to push you toward the truth. And so if you've got a little resistance toward this idea, then you might be thinking, are you saying I can't even have an opinion? No, absolutely not. Who, who, Who could live by that standard? You can't even have an opinion. Of course you can have an opinion for yourself. Of course you can. What about an opinion for other people? Well, I think we're close to judging now. Are you saying that I can't tell somebody what the Bible says about something? No, no, of course you can. Absolutely. In fact, you ought to be in conversations all the time with people about what God says about this or about that and how it's lived out. But if you come with an agenda of condemnation or holier than thou or without humility, then you have come with a spirit of judgment. And I promise you, hypocrisy and cancer is at the center and they will run. And they should because that's not safe. Well, how will people know if they aren't told? Well, the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit reveals these things. And last time I checked, that's not your job. It's not. It's above your pay grade. The Holy Spirit convicts. So what are we to do? Well, Jesus made it clear. He said this. A new command I give you. What's the new command? That's not a new command. wonder why he said that. It's not. It's all through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. He said it because in Greek, there's not really a a period there. There's no punctuation in Greek. A new command I give you, love one another. What does it say after that? As I have loved you. In this passage, it's the night before Jesus is killed. They're going to have communion as we are about to have in just a moment. And Jesus had just washed the feet of the disciples. Some would say that the opposite of judgment is love. I I don't think that's true. I I mean, you know, a case could be made. I don't think you can love and judge at the same time, but I believe the opposite of judgment is humility. Humility. This is why Jesus said, look, you have seen what I've done. It's been an example to you. Now go and do likewise. Love one another as I have loved you. That's how you love one another. This is the new command. That we would love each other in that way. You cannot love and judge at the same time. We come with humility. And when we do, we come, one sinner chatting with another, wanting to experience the depth of God's love and grace. And so then he says this, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you judge one another. I mean, that's what you would think when you look at the church, right? That's what you would think. But Jesus has a different approach. I'd love for our servers to go get the elements and prepare as we finish this part of the message and move toward communion. Christianity is the only perspective about God. I hesitate to say religion because of our 
understanding of systemic theology and systematic theology. It is the only perspective of God where the verdict is already in. When the verdict is in, what does that mean? It means you don't have to come to God in such a way that you find yourself acceptable to him. When you come to God, you are accepted. In fact, you've been made acceptable to him. The verdict being in means that you have already been loved. Even before you receive it, you've already been loved. The forgiveness of Jesus at the cross flows every direction. Your past, your present, your future. You are accepted in. Jesus says, you belong to me now. He holds up the bread. He reminds us that his body has been broken. And he tears it in front of his friends. And of course, the very next day, they will watch his body get torn in multiple ways. And he says, this is my body. It's broken for you. I give it to you freely. He holds up the cup of Passover. And when he does this, he says, this is the blood of a new covenant. Take it, each of you, and drink from it. And so we receive it. These elements remind us that you and I, as we approach other people, have nothing but love to give, loving one another. Opinions, we have many. Perspectives, so much for us to learn, and so much we've already learned. But we know that for each of us, what is only left, as Paul says, is the debt of love. That's all we have to pay is loving each other. And so in just a moment, you can make your way around this room, go slowly and patiently. It's a full room. You'll have to navigate other people. In fact, I bet there'll be some people walking in a direction that you would think, I can't believe, don't they see? We're all going this other direction. And even in communion, you'll find yourself being judgmental. And then you'll have to remember, oh Lord, forgive me. I, sometimes I am judgmental even as we experience the elements that remind us that each of us are forgiven. And one of our servers will look at you as you pick up the bread, and if you choose to take communion today, they'll say to you, this is the body of Christ, it's broken for you, or something similar. This is the blood of Jesus that's poured out for you. When we receive this, we admit that we are sinners before God. And we also accept that we are unconditionally loved and forgiven by God. Both are true. And we believe this, not just about us, but I believe it about Josh. And I believe it about you. And I believe that we are in this together and that we can only link arms and walk forward together. And so we do not judge, we love. Now, when this makes its way into the world, wherever you live, with whomever you are in life with, it is transforming. It's the only thing that can change the world is the love of Jesus. When you receive it, then you give it freely. And so Lord, as we come and we receive these elements, we receive your grace and we receive your mercy. We come to this table where we are all equal, one and the same, where we are loved unconditionally forgiven unequivocally so Lord make us aware when our judgmental hearts rise up just give us a little poke 
a nudge. Help us to come to you just like we're coming to this table today with open hands to receive your mercy. And so, Lord, we pray this before taking these elements, knowing that we may go a few minutes or a few days or maybe longer before we fail at this very thing. And so we recognize that the words you give us in the Sermon on the Mount are not a new law for us to be bound by, but an invitation to freedom that we may love others well and receive your love. Help us to respond to your invitations that you give us, to be open, to be humble, to take this piece of wood out of our eye, to see others with compassion. Help us to leave the heavy lifting to you. Help us to trust. Help us to love. And right now, help us to remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of your son, that we may no longer be held in slavery by our fear of death, that we may know that you are with us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. We say together, amen.